Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Of all of the questions we consider at this Yisker moment, towards the top, if not at the very top of the list, is a question of what will be the first line of our obituaries. If nothing else, Yisker alerts us to the shared fate that awaits us all, how we choose to recall our loved ones, and one day how those who will follow will recall us, the first lines, if you will, of our obituaries. Today, I want to share with you a story, a snapshot of American history, of Jewish American history, and of Park Avenue Synagogue history, an amazing story which, by a certain telling, has this very question at its center. This year, as some of you may know, marks 70 years since the 1953 executions of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, two spies found guilty of selling atomic secrets to the Soviets. The judge who sentenced the Rosenbergs to death was Irving Kaufman. Kaufman was not only a member of Park Avenue, but in 1973, he was the recipient of our community's highest Simchas Torah honor, our Chatan Breshit. Judge Kaufman's funeral took place in this sanctuary in 1992. Now, if you saw this past summer's Oppenheimer or know your history, then you have a sense of just how charged that chapter of early 1950s post-American history, war history was fear of the atomic threat, McCarthyism, Soviet spies suspected and real, for American Jews already negotiating their insider-outsider status, it was all the more fraught as our predecessors sought entry into the social, economic, and judicial ranks of American society. Kaufman was part of that story, a brilliant and ambitious lawyer from the Lower East Side to law school, to legal distinction, to the attorney general's office, to judge of New York Southern District. When the Rosenberg trial arrived, most judges tried to keep their distance. They knew that whatever the outcome would be, it would be controversial, all the more so for a Jewish judge to adjudicate a case involving spies who were Jewish. But Kaufman was ambitious and he saw an opportunity for career advancement, one day perhaps a seat on the highest court of the land. The case did catch the world's attention, and Kaufman received pressure from both sides. He would later reflect and recall how he came to his synagogue, this synagogue, to pray for wisdom as he prepared to issue his verdict. Not only did the jury find the Rosenbergs guilty, But in his sentencing, 
Kaufman let loose a, cor- a torrent of condemnation, the crime of the Rosenbergs worse than murder, their actions perhaps even setting in motion the Korean War. As Martin Siegel suggests in his fabulous book on Kaufman named Judgment and Mercy, Kaufman held special disdain for the Rosenbergs who had once been just like him, poor Jews from the Lower East Side, but then spurned everything both he and America stood for. The fallout was sharp. Appeals for clemency came in from everyone, from Picasso to the Pope. But Kaufman's verdict held. Many in the Jewish community felt betrayed. One rabbi writing that Kaufman should have spent time, less time praying and more time studying Talmud, where we, he would have learned about Judaism's arm's-length relationship to capital punishment. Most damning were the accusations of judicial misconduct. Throughout the trial, Kaufman engaged in ex parte discussions with a member of the prosecution team, Roy Cohn, famous for the McCarthy hearings, his later association with the Trump family, and slightly less well-known, having had his bar mitzvah in this very sanctuary. The Cohens and the Kaufmans were close family friends, members of Park Avenue Synagogue interconnected by way of the high society shtetl life of the Upper East Side. Kaufman saw the writing on the wall, or more precisely, the typeset of the newspaper. In the words of Linda Greenhouse, not a Park Avenue synagogue member yet, Kaufman dedicated his life to trying to make sure that the first paragraph of his New York Times obituary would not be Judge Irving Kaufman who sentenced the Rosenbergs to death. Kaufman cultivated a close relationship with Arthur Punch Salzberger of the New York Times. In Kaufman, Punch had a strident First Amendment ally, and in Punch, Kaufman had a vehicle by which he could rehabilitate his name. In the decades to come, Kaufman's rulings would become some of the most strident defenses of free speech on record. Whether he ruled in favor of liberal causes because of conviction or as an effort to rehabilitate his name, nobody will ever fully know. Nevertheless, a seat on the Supreme Court forever looted him. Hearing that Kaufman had prayed for wisdom in the synagogue, Frankfurter, who held the then Jewish seat on the court, wrote, I despise a judge who feels God told him to impose a death sentence. I am mean enough to stay here on the court long enough so that Kaufman will be too old to succeed me. Forty years after the Rosenberg case, at Kaufman's funerals, there were protesters outside of our synagogue. As Rabbi Nadich eulogized him, someone stood up in this very sanctuary and bellowed, He murdered the Rosenbergs, let him rot in hell. As for his Times obituary, I'll let you decide. It reads, Judge Irving Kaufman of Rosenberg's spy trial and free press rulings dies at 81. The Kaufman story is an extraordinary one. The lessons it contains could set sail 
to a book of sermons. But at this Yisker moment, I find myself returning to the question of how a life is to be lived and how a life is to be remembered. Martin Siegel, the author of the book on Kaufman, no doubt chose its title, Judgment and Mercy, because Kaufman was a judge. And I think at this time of Yisker, judgment and mercy is also a lens by which we can frame our present project of memory. This sanctuary, first and foremost, is a house of worship. But at Yisker, for some, it also functions as a courtroom of sorts. The primary image of the holiday season being the book of life. Over the holidays, God opens up the book of our lives inscribed with our deeds. Likewise, at this moment of Yisker, each one of us opens up the book of life of those we carry in our hearts every day, but especially here today. What is the sum total of a person's deeds? No life is perfect. We all have faults, frailties, and failures. It is, after all, what Yom Kippur is all about. In the year ahead, we, the living, are granted the opportunity to rehabilitate our names and our relationships. But when we remember someone, the dynamic is different. It's not the dead, but it's the living who decide. We make the choices of what we remember of our loved ones, what we forget, and what we will forgive. Where shall we direct our focus? Deen or Rachamim? Judgment or mercy? Consider Moses, the greatest leader our people has ever known, from facing down Pharaoh to leading the Israelites through the wilderness to the very steps of the Jordan. And yet for one misstep, Moses was refused entry to the promised land, hitting the rock. The loved ones we recall today were all too human. Will we perseverate on any single misstep, or shall we reflect on the totality of their lives with a generosity of spirit, focusing on their kindnesses, their failures, whatever they were, to be understood in the context of a wider humanity and their deeper struggles? Which path shall we pick? Deen or Rachamim, judgment or mercy? It's not a straightforward or easy question. In this world, there are hurts that cannot be forgiven. In this world, there are failings that cannot be excused. Perhaps a good place to start, a human place to start, is the golden rule itself, that we should do unto others what we ourselves would want done to us. Part of the power of Yisker is a realization that someday someone, hopefully, will be reciting Yisker for each one of us. Wouldn't we all want, I certainly know I would, that those people who will remember us do so with a spirit of generosity? As the rabbis teach, ma'avir al-midotav ma'avirin lo, the person who is willing to pass over the shortcomings of others will have their own shortcomings passed over. The calculus is not exact, but it's as good a place to start as any, a call to remember our loved ones in their faults and their foibles as we ourselves would want to be remembered. And then, of course, is a charge for us, the living. Good people can agree or disagree regarding the merits 
of the Rosenberg sentencing. But from what I can tell, while Kaufman stood by his judgment, it weighed heavily on him because he concluded that his decision in that one case would determine how he would be remembered forever. And so for better, and perhaps also for worse, a self-fulfilling prophecy emerged. Kaufman spending his days doing everything in his power to tip the scales of his future judgment towards mercy. On a certain level, Kaufman's tale reads like a Shakespearean tragedy in its pathos, so focused in life on what he could not control in death. Nobody, save Moses, gets to write of their own death. None of us actually write our own obituaries. What we can do, and frankly what we should do, is spend our days filling our ledgers with good deeds that will be remembered. Not just because we've all stumbled along the way and we need to do penance, but because unto itself, it's the right thing to do. If you have the inclination, by all means, write the defense of your life. Get your side of the story out there in the public sphere or build a statue in your honor. If you have the means to do so, fill this world with acts of staka, acts of righteous giving, supporting or fighting for those causes and institutions in which you believe. It won't make your wrongs right, but it will mean that in the years ahead, when people speak or see your name, it will be your values, not your stumbles, that may be remembered. But most of all, and I believe this is what Yisker boils down to, is that we have to spend the years, the hours, and the days that we have in this world thinking about our lives, not our afterlives, engaged and impacting the lives of others. I have been doing this rabbi thing for some time now, and while I won't say never, I'm hard-pressed to think of a single child, grandchild, spouse, or sibling who eulogized their loved ones by way of the deals they brokered, the books they published, or the money that they made. Our loved ones will remember the love we shared, the advice we gave, the humanity we demonstrated, and the values we lived when we live them and when we ask for forgiveness for having fallen short of them. The tragedy of Kaufman's life was neither his judgment of the Rosenbergs nor, for that matter, the judgment of how history remembers him. Kaufman's tragedy was his singular focus on his obituary when it should have been on the living, on how those who knew him and loved him in all his flawed humanity would remember him. Historians will write what historians will write, but what should we care about? Where should we direct our energies and efforts in our limited lives of uncertain duration? I think towards those people who matter most, the people who, please God, one day will be sitting in Yisker remembering us. Judgment and Mercy, a fitting title for this moment of Yisker. The books of life that were our loved ones' lives sit open before us. One day, the books of our lives will lay open before those who follow. May we judge them, our loved ones, with mercy. May we be judged with mercy. And may the merit of our loving deeds cause us to be inscribed 
in the book of life in the year and all the years to come. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, Hallelujah.